the Euro-dollar futures curve has inverted, and that's bad news for the global economy, for you, for me, for everyone. We're going to talk about it on a special two-part episode of Euro-dollar University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Partners. And ladies and gentlemen, this has happened before. In December 2006, the Euro-dollar futures curve inverted, and just eight months later, we had the global financial crisis begin. It happened again in June 2018. And by November, we had the global economy downshift abruptly into a much slower rate of growth. And by January, the best laid monetary plans of mice and central bankers were thrown aside. July 2020, similar thing. There was a cramp. There was a kink in the curve. And maybe it's a coincidence, ladies and gentlemen, but by the first quarter of 2021, many money markets around the world said that the recovery, the reflation, the best days of that were behind us. And it's happened again. Jeff, whenever we bring up the Eurodollar futures curve, people, they kind of, they're not interested at all. And I remember once bringing it up to some guy and he said, wow, we're just blowing right through nap time, aren't we? Yeah, it's funny. I have the same experience that you do. When you bring up Eurodollar futures, people start checking their watch and they fidget in their chair and they look around. And even in our modern electronic world, you can see, I'll write an article <laughs> and you can tell they'll read the first paragraph and it's click. Go to YouTube. As soon as we mention Eurodollar futures, the video just turns right off. You know, I, I guess I understand why that is and what it's really about. It's just to me, it's, you got to understand that this stuff is extremely important because the Eurodollar futures market as a whole is an extension of the bond market. And it's a very important extension of the bond market. I think we'll talk about that a little bit here, why that is. So to just, you know, to kind of set it aside and say, you know, I'm not going to take much interest in euro dollar futures. I think you're doing yourself a very big disservice because there's an enormous amount of information embedded in the curve and not just an enormous amount of information, but good information, useful information that has been validated, as you just said, validated time and time again. When we see these things happen in the curve, you can almost set your watch by what's going to follow from it. It's been that good of an early warning indicator to tell us very important things about what must be going on in real time inside the monetary system and the global economy. So Eurodollar futures, it gets complicated. It's a bit of a mess. It's not necessarily intuitive, but it's worth your time and effort. You try to make sure that we're aware of that fact, that this is important. You start out with the title. This is a big one. No, it's not clickbait. Posted on December 1st, 2021. And then in bold, italicized letters, you write, these derivative contracts have been the most reliable, especially early warning indications that exist. Maybe one of the reasons that people are yawning about it is that it has to do with LIBOR and LIBOR's on the way out, Jeff. And so let's talk a little bit about first principles. What are Eurodollar futures? What do they represent? How do we, why do we tie in LIBOR? What's that about? Well, that's what they're priced on. That's based on, you, you get paid, uh, their obviously their futures contracts that pay out on an index tied to three-month LIBOR. So they're inextricably linked to three-month LIBOR, which is a good thing because three-month LIBOR actually does tell us something. Yes, you're right. The rumors are that LIBOR's days are numbered. I'm not so sanguine about the, the ability of, of policymakers to just ditch LIBOR. I think LIBOR might be around a lot longer than people might expect, especially if you're only listening to uh, Federal Reserve members or something like that on the topic of LIBOR, because LIBOR has credit information, it has liquidity information, it has a lot of deep, very 
very good information about what's going on in the state of the monetary system in particular and what are the implications of that, which is why we look at forward LIBOR, futures contracts for LIBOR. Not just where three-month LIBOR is today, but where does the market think three-month LIBOR is going to be a couple years from now, for example? That's an important, very important part of fixed income, bond markets, how credit and money flows through the economy. So again, Eurodollar futures tied to LIBOR is a good thing. It's a positive thing. It's an aspect. It's a very fundamental aspect of what we're trying to interpret and evaluate. LIBOR, London Interbank Offered Rate, ladies and gentlemen, in case you didn't know. And of course, London is the home. The birthplace, probably, we don't know, of the euro dollar offshore, off balance sheet, off the regulatory radar monetary system that governs our global economy. So it's important to know what this rate is signifying. As Jeff just said, it's not just the next three months, it's predictions well into the future, many years into the future, about where that three month rate will be. And it's a little bit like the treasury yield curve, right, Jeff? There are different parts of the LIBOR curve. Tell us a little bit about the the front years and what they respond to, and then the middle, and then the the farther further out years. Yeah, we've got to remember this that these things are tied to again fixed income processes, bond market, credit markets, debt, and things like that. So you have large pocketed, large financial institutions that are doing all of this money business, all this credit business, and they use euro dollar futures primarily to hedge their positions, to hedge bank against their perceptions about what's going on. So they establish positions on three month LIBOR based on what they think is going to be moving three month LIBOR at whatever time they need to hedge, you know, whatever set threads or whatever, whatever they're using in their models to manage risk in their big, huge, massive balance sheet positions. And what that means is you have to look at what is it that influences LIBOR in, say, the short run versus the intermediate term or the longer run. And so the way Eurodollar futures work is that the CME has allowed you to buy what are called packs and bundles, which is usually means a pack is usually means the um, the, the most the, the four closest quarterly <laughs> contracts. For example, the white pack today would be the December 2021 contract, the March 22, the June 22 and the September 22. So those four would constitute what's called the white pack. And then after that, the next four, which would begin with the December 2022, and then the ones thereafter is called the reds. The whites and the reds, which is amount to the eight next quarterly contracts, which is about two years of contract maturity. Those are the ones that respond to three-month LIBOR, mostly being influenced by Federal Reserve monetary policy, because LIBOR and the Federal Reserve, they do share a cl- relatively close correlation, much tighter correlation before August 9, 2007 than after. But still, because the Fed influences money markets by what it pays on IOER and RRP and things like that, three-month three LIBOR does bear some resemblance to what the monetary policy is in the short run. So the whites and the reds are going to be heavily influenced by not just what the Fed is doing now, but what the Fed says it's going to be doing in the near future. So if the Fed says we're going to taper, we're going to hike rates, go back to 2018, for example, they were hiking rates, then the whites and the reds are going to reflect what the Fed thinks it's going to be able to do in the short run. So you'll see this, if they're hiking rates, you'll see the whites and reds reflect that in rising prices or falling prices, sorry, rising nominal yields, which means steeper curve. Sounds just like U.S. Treasury bills, also a money alternative. They're all related and all reacting to what the Federal Reserve may be doing most of the time, right? But during shocks, these markets might go off on their own. But okay, so that's the early part of the curve. Let's talk about the notes and bonds 
equivalent of the U.S. Treasury yield curve in euro dollar futures, do they also reflect kind of the long run economic expectations or what is it that the longer term maturities further out, what are they signifying? Yeah, once you get past the whites and the reds, you get greens, blues, gold, purples and some other colors I don't even remember. But really, the greens and the blues, sometimes the gold. What they're telling us is less about what the Fed thinks it's going to do. And it start because you're further and further away from today. You get into that gray area where, OK, the future is really that much more uncertain. So maybe the Fed thinks it's going to be hiking rates. But, you know, over time, it probably, you know, it might be that the, it might be the case that, well, the Fed may not be able to hike rates. And so if as much as influence, as much as financial participants are hedging based on monetary policy in the whites and the reds, when you get to the greens and blues, it's more about, OK, what's the economic conditions really going to be like? Yeah, Jay Powell, can, you know, the Fed can continue hiking rates or cutting rates, as the case may be, for quite a long period of time, because, you know, if we see problems today, it may take a while for those actually materialize to alter monetary policy course. So the greens and blues are really looking out at possibilities beyond the short run of what the Federal Reserve actually might be able to do. Not what it plans to do. What it plans to do, that's whites and reds, but what it might actually be able to do. And what it's able to do is maybe not the same thing as what the Fed thinks it will be able to do. And that's what really happened in, in 2018. We had the case where the whites and reds, steeper curve, rate hikes, the Fed was incredibly hawkish. But then you started to get into the greens and blues where the market started to really hedge against what were then rising deflationary problems that were really starting to bug the market to that much of an extent. One last first principles item before we move on to 2018. Inversion. What is it? We're assuming, right, that these money curves are supposed to be upward sloping. Tell us why and tell us if inversion is indeed that thing that Leonardo DiCaprio does with an idea in your mind, or if it's something else. Yeah, I don't know if we have enough talismans to do that kind of a discussion, but in some ways that's the case, right? I mean, inversion is essentially, it's unnatural. It's an upset to what is the natural order. As you just said, curves are supposed to be upward sloping. Upward sloping is beautiful. It's positive. It's optimistic because it says that we believe interest rates are going to be rising through the future because we think things are generally good and healthy and moving in the right direction. We would want interest rates to be rising, not falling, because we realize that rising interest rates, especially where we are now with unnaturally low interest rates that have been held low for a very long time because of constant deflationary pressures, not the Fed, but constantly, you know, interest rate fallacy, deflationary pressures. We want a steep euro dollar futures curve because that would mean the market is saying not just reds and whites and monetary policy, but also greens and blues reflecting how we expect interest rates to continue to rise beyond the foreseeable horizon, which would suggest normality, normalcy, the world getting back to economic climate that is actually more like what we used to associate with legitimate economic growth and the legitimate economic booms. So we want to see an upward slope to the curve because upward slope is beautiful. Upward slope is health. Upward slope from today would mean, hey, we're getting back into a, a situation where it's realistically a recovery, getting back to normal, getting back to actual economic booms and things like that. And especially, as you know, in this post-2008 world, they should be particularly steep because we're so low on the y-axis. So we should absolutely see naturally inclining steep curves if there's any sort of hope of recovery and reflation. Yes, yeah, steep, steep reds and whites, steep greens and blues, and even steeper golds and purples. Let's, let's get all the colors of the rainbow, all the colors of the euro dollar rainbow 
moving up at your 45 degree angle or better because it, as you just said Emil we're at such a low such a low state here such a pitiful state that's what would tell us that we're on the road to actual legitimate recovery and economic health monetary system or what was the term Janet Yellen used a couple of years ago financial resilience or resilient system that's how we would know the euro dollar futures curve would tell us that and it would tell us that by being very steep and to get back to what you just said, inversion inversion is the opposite, upends that natural order where we see not only does the curve flatten out, especially in the greens and blues and beyond, what it does is that eventually you get an inversion like the yield curve where the next euro dollar futures contract price in line is actually higher than the one before it when it should be lower. And so that's sort of an expectation where the market is saying, Okay, the current expectation for three-month LIBOR is this. We're starting to get the sense that at some point, something's going to happen or cumulative some things are going to happen that rates, maybe there's a risk they start going the opposite way. They start going lower again. And what do we associate falling interest rates with? Stimulus? No, we, we associate falling, or falling interest rates with a Federal Reserve panicking because of weakness and deflationary conditions. So inversion in the market is where we don't have the upward slope. We have a little bit of a downward slope that might grow over time, which tells us the market is saying something isn't right. Something serious. There's a serious risk in these marketplaces that's being perceived in these marketplaces. And they're not just being perceived. They're being actively traded in such a way that it completely upends what's supposed to be a natural, beautiful curve and actually distorts it to the point where it's, it's grotesquely inverted. And that's why we look at inverted curves and say, okay, something's happening here because first of all, it's not upward sloping. And second of all, it must be serious enough that traders are overcoming their natural instinct. They're overcoming all of their institutional biases and are actually distorting the curve in a way that's, that it should not be distorted. Let's take a look at an example. 2018 through 2022 is our x-axis. And on there, we've got four lines that show what the euro dollar futures curve was on that particular date. And we start out with May 27th, no, September 5th, 2017. And then we work our way up to May 17th, 2018. We've got a couple of lines in between there. And Jeff, it seems like what we're observing here is that it started out low, but was upward sloping. Great. And it moved up the whole curve raised on the back of the globally synchronized growth. And maybe there's going to be inflation. Maybe there's going to be recovery. But by the time we get to May 2018, we notice that the front part is moving up somewhat, you know, reasonably enough, I suppose. But relative to the back end, the back end is not as enthusiastic anymore and is starting to flatten out. Did I capture that correctly? And if I did, tell us what happened then coming very shortly thereafter, May 29th. No, I think that's exactly right. You have the two parts of the curve. You have the reds and whites, which were reflecting the hawkish Janet Yellen initial Jay Powell period where he said, you know, inflation is going to be a problem. We need to we need to accelerate our rate hike schedule. And so you see that reflected in the front part of the euro dollar futures curve as it evolves in the first half of 2018, which was consistent with globally synchronized growth, the inflation expectations that certainly in the financial media we're talking about as if it was a guaranteed surefire thing to happen. But as you noted, that was just the reds and the whites. When you get to the greens and that further down the curve, as 2018 started and then wore on, it seemed like there was almost like two different curves, right? Like the yield curve is sometimes two curves set together. 
We have the euro dollar futures curve. Again, the reds and the whites, that by necessity, they're reflecting what monetary policy seems, that what monetary policy is set today. But then you get to the further out down the middle of the curve and beyond. And it was, okay, we're seeing warning signs. We're seeing things that are contrary, contradicting the inflation growth narrative. During the first half of 2018, we've got the rising dollar. We've got emerging market currencies. We've got a flattening yield curve. Any number of other financial and economic data warning signs that are saying this inflation stuff, this growth stuff that's reflected in the reds and whites and euro dollar futures. Yeah, okay, maybe, but we don't think it's going to be able to last very long. And so traders were starting to to price, especially in the greens into the early blues, their skepticism, their the idea that interest rates are not going to go as high as Jay Powell thought they might. In fact, when we get to the middle, by May 2018, the curve had really flattened out, which was by itself an unusual distortion, which said the market was becoming very skeptical about the inflation growth story. Because, again, as we said, there's any number of other indications which said that the in, certainly in terms of money and risk, there were less money, rising risks, and therefore we'd expect the uh, euro dollar futures curve where it can to flatten out as it had. So the first half of 2018... Yeah, you've got the reds and whites saying we think Jay Powell is going to be able is going to be hawkish, but then the greens and blues, which were something's not right here, something's wrong. All right, new graph now. We're looking. We're starting out with the last date of the previous graph, May seventeenth, and then what we see is another three lines, and the lowest line is the one that represents collateral day. Which, for those of you who haven't joined us previously, I would describe as a game of musical chairs, and instead of pulling out one chair, you pull out three or four and the music stops on that particular day, and there's a scramble for the best quality collateral. So there's a panic, and you can see what a retreat. I haven't seen a retreat like this since Napoleon left Moscow. Holy cow, it pulled down violently. And then over the subsequent days, a couple of weeks, we see breath returned into that Eurodollar futures curve. It sort of tries to go back towards normal. Tell us, Jeff, what we should take away from from this chart. Well, in the first half, as we said, of 2018, we had these warning signs. The dollar was going up. There was noises in, current, in, in the emerging market currencies in particular. You know, we talked about Urjit Patel, the head of Federal Reserve Bank of India, talking about dollar funding evaporated, all those things that happened. And then May 29th, as you pointed out, collateral day. That was the serious break where the markets all together said, yeah, this really is a serious problem and it's probably only going to get worse, which is why May 29th, 2018 shows up on any number of charts. And to this day, you can still see it on any number of charts, which because it was that important to the monetary system as recognizing how what were before collateral risk and general deflationary risk had become very real risk. In fact, not just risk, this is actually happening. As you said, musical chairs where they're yanking chairs out from under people all at once and leading to this vast scramble for the few remaining seats available. And that that's an eye-opening experience if you're in these markets. If you have leveraged balance sheets and you're running out in repo and all of a sudden the collateral availability just disappears, that's going to affect your mindset, not just tomorrow, but going forward. And everybody else can see this inside the marketplace. And so what Eurodollar futures were pricing is this, this big deflationary negative money problem that was becoming a huge problem more than, more than it had been before such that it, it was no longer something that we could just say, this is a could be, maybe it will happen, because it did happen. And so going forward, the Eurodollar futures, going forward from May 29, 2018, 
the euro dollar futures curve first more than anywhere else started to price out that this this collateral problem is going to stick around and probably only get worse. And what that meant was in the greens and the blues, not the whites and the reds. So the yield dollar futures curve down from the middle on out, we started to see on June 13th, 2018, we did see a tiny little speck of inversion. So the curve had flattened out before then. Then June 13th, we get this little bit of inversion in the, in the, especially in the green contracts, which said, Okay, this is post May 29. We know things went wrong. We don't see anything getting better. And it's not really a random coincidence that the inversion happened on June 13th either. So the market is saying things are getting worse. Exactly. So we were describing up to this point the rise and fall and then the flattening of the euro dollar futures curve. And now June 13th and June 14th, we observe our first inversion. And as you just mentioned, Jeff, the last thing we're going to talk about in this part of the episode, it wasn't a coincidence. The Federal Reserve came out and they made an incantation. They lit, It was really incantation. It was chanting and they included a new magic word that was supposed to signal reflationary fire, rocket fuel. Wow. They were really going to burn the house down the day after, you know, what a stain on their professional reputation that this market the day after said, <laughs> just what a rejection. Maybe it was a coincidence, Jeff. Was it a coincidence? Yeah, it was. No, what are you guys talking, right? I mean, the market, we had just gone through May 29th. We got the dollar going. We got all of these negative deflationary indications. And these people are off talking about they're going to they're going to introduce this symmetrical inflation target, which is supposed to be reflecting this positive, optimistic outcome, this hawkish policy. And everybody in the marketplace is just shaking their heads like, what are you guys talking about? We have very real monetary problems here. You don't even know what the hell they are. You're, you're going off into the symmetrical inflation target when we're talking about collateral. So I don't think it was random coincidence that the euro dollar futures curve first inverted the day of the, the second day, the wrap up of that Federal Reserve meeting, which, which that announcement was made because the market said, you know, we don't really have a very good opinion of these people anyway. And it's obvious they're not going to help. It's obvious that they're going to make the situation worse because they don't know what they're talking about. And they distract the public by all of these shiny objects that have no bearing on what, how the market or the economy actually works. So this was like sort of, hey, May 29th, this is our last chance to get things right before things really go wrong. And the Fed comes out with its garbage. And so euro dollar futures curve inverts and throws in the towel on the whole thing and says, we're going into a downturn. It's, there's really probably no way to escape it at this point. The Fed was, you know, an infinitesimally small chance the Fed could have helped. And now that's gone because these people are just off in their own little world. So that's where we get the inversion. And rest of the story, as we know, the inversion proved to be completely, utterly, fantastically accurate and predictive. In part two of this episode, we're going to talk about what happened in December 2006. We're going to talk very quickly what happened in July 2020 and then focus the rest of the part on uh whatever december 1st 2021 right now so don't go anywhere the euro dollar futures curve has inverted that is bad news for the global economy and all of us in part one of this episode we already talked about what happened in 2018 as well as more of a background abc 101 elementary kind of background information, first principles on what the euro dollar futures curve tells us. So check that out if you missed it. 
Right now in part two, we're going to go back and review another episode when it happened in December 2006. Then another maybe different, but maybe similar one in July 2020. And then the rest of the show, we're going to focus on what just happened. December 1st, 2021, the euro dollar futures curve inverted. What does it mean? Jeff, let's go back. And oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, the article you want to be reading along with us is this is a big one. No, it's not clickbait. December 1st, 2021, posted at the Alhambra Investments blog by the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, Jeff Snyder. Jeff, December 2006, the Eurodollar futures curve inverts. Wow. Big stuff, right? Uh, I doubt anybody remembers because you certainly didn't make any of the news or the financial media. And if you read some of the private transcripts from FOMC meetings, we had, as we, I think we talked about this before, maybe not. I've certainly written about it many times before. Bill Dudley, the head of open market operations, who said, eh, who cares? Eurodollar futures? Pfft, we don't care about Eurodollar futures. Obviously, we're not going to cut rates anytime soon. So the market must be completely wrong. But yeah, you know, Eurodollar futures, important part of the marketplace, inverted curve, as we talked about in the previous segment. Curves are supposed to be upward sloping, especially in a period when, especially like 2006, you know, Alan Greenspan and then Ben Bernanke's rate hikes, things were supposed to be good and inflationary. Why wasn't the curve upward sloping? And more than that, why did it invert in December of 2006? What was really going on at that time? As much as everybody was told to dismiss these problems, remember subprime was contained. Here we had a very, 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 very early warning that this wasn't, not only was subprime not contained, this wasn't really about subprime. There was more going on here than simply just a bunch of bad mortgages. Jeff, we haven't mentioned it. We're just assuming people know, but this isn't just some out of the way market, Eurodollar futures. This is one of the biggest markets in the world, one of the most sophisticated. So it's not like we're talking about the Myanmar stock exchange and like, well, whatever. No, this is highly complex system and everyone's coming here and spending billions of dollars to try to get it right. So maybe that's a good indication we should pay attention to. Just say the notional contract, the, the notional amounts, and these are fictional euro dollar deposit accounts, the amount for each major quarterly contract, the numbers are into the trillion. So these, this is not a small market. In fact, next to the US treasury market, it's probably the largest, most sophisticated, deepest market in the world. And as you pointed out in the last, in the previous segment, it's about three-month LIBOR. The name is Eurodollar. This is the market that is actually focused on the Eurodollar system itself. So it is, it's not just, as you said, it's not just some niche market out of the way that we should ignore. It is basically the one tool we have that looks at the very thing we want to know about from the perspective of those operating in the Eurodollar system, telling us what they think is going on or what they think is going to be able to go on in the near future. And then pricing it for us, giving us all sorts of useful information about what is happening and what we should expect to happen over time. It's, it's incredibly important. Well, it's incredibly important if you're interested in money supply and demand, not narrative, Jeff. So we know where that comes from. July 2020 now. We've discussed June 2018, December 2006. I think those are similar to what happened and this is happening right now, December 2021. Is the episode of July 2020 similar or different? And it shouldn't be included in our group here. It's categorically different, but that doesn't mean it shouldn't something we should ignore either. It was 
it wasn't the same sort of inversion. It was sort of an inverted inversion. I think we talked about it back then, which was simply just a different kind of market skepticism about the Federal Reserve's digital flood of money, which the market keeps preparing for each and every year end that, you know, there's a chance that we could have a monetary issue which would lead to LIBOR rates skyrocketing, which is why you had this little tick or pucker in the euro dollar futures curve around the early next year contracts, especially the more liquid quarterly ones, which was just the market saying, look, flood of money? No, it's, it, there's really not a flood of money. And we're really concerned about year end period. We're going to look at three charts in a row now. The first one, Jeff, we're going to start out looking at a chart that shows five different lines representing five different days between August 2020 and August 2021. And I see generally a uh, an improvement from our first line to our second line, but then ever since then kind of uh, a retracement, unreflation. Can you tell us what these lines mean? Do, do you have it in front of you or do you want me to read it out to you? No, I got it. Look, it's it's again, it's very similar to what we just talked about in the early 2017, 2018 period, globally synchronized growth. You have the reds and the whites, which are the front contracts reflecting what they think, what the market thinks is going to happen in terms of immediate Federal Reserve policy and other factors that might influence three-month LIBOR, which mostly the Federal Reserve policy because of the return alternatives to, to money markets and deposit accounts and things like that in the euro dollar system. So you have the steepening of the yield curve, especially at the front end, but also in the back end too, which is consistent with reflation and more optimism. Remember, upward sloping is beautiful. Upward sloping is healthy. Upward sloping is good. So from August of last year until about March of this year, consistent with the yield curve and other financial indications, the market was becoming a bit more optimistic about the future, which, I mean, coming off of a very bad recession in 2020, that seems to be natural, even if the rebound from the low point wasn't really all that much to begin with. The market was at least saying, we expect the rebound, whatever it is, whatever shape it is, to continue into the foreseeable future. But that only lasts, as you said, that only lasted until about March. In euro dollar futures, I think it was early April when the curve finally peaked. And then from then, you got a little bit more skepticism. The, the curve was still upward sloping, but prices started to go up in euro dollar futures pricing, which meant lower interest rates overall predicted in the future, which is sort of a negative indication. It also, this was coincident to the flattening in the yield curve, which was, again, another deflationary pressure, another deflationary potential indication. So we have this, okay, we had, we had basically unfettered reflation until March. And then since March and April, it's been more questionable in both the yield curve, euro dollar futures, as we pointed out before, swap spreads, the rising U.S. dollar exchange value, all of these things together are saying the market's starting to get incoming information that isn't so rosy, it isn't so good. And maybe this unfettered reflation, this other, you know, rebound from 2020, maybe there are, there's darkening skies ahead. There's problems that are starting to crop up that we maybe should start paying more attention to. You know, from the end of March, thereabouts, roughly speaking, early April, as you've got on here, to early August, that coincides with the U.S. Treasury yield curve, not yield curve, but the U.S. 10-year U.S. Treasury yield going in the wrong direction, saying, yeah, I'm not really liking what I'm seeing out here when it comes to economic recovery and hope. And that's what we're seeing in the euro dollar futures. We're seeing it represented there as well. Then, as we talked about before in previous episodes, from the very early part of August through, I don't know, somewhat recently, we've had a kind of a, a, well, a recharge in the reflation talk, talk of taper, talk of hiking rates, talk of accelerating taper. 
The delta's being pulled back and things might be getting better. We're reopening again. And that's what we see in this second set of graphs, of euro dollar future graphs. We start out with our August, where we left off on the previous graph. And then we go to October and November. And uh, it seems like it's rising. Uh, positive. Good news. Yes, but it's rising in the same way the curve rose in early 2018. It's rising in the wrong way, right? Because you're right. It, during, Especially since August and into September and October, we had more taper. And then, of course, the announcement for taper. And now we've got hawkish policy. You're talking about rate hikes being accelerated, all that stuff which is reflected in the euro dollar futures curve in the whites and the reds, the front part of the curve, which got much steeper as it normally does, as it did in the early part of 2018. But con con coincident and consistent with all these other negative indications, you get into the greens and the blues of the euro dollar futures curve. All of a sudden, it's, it's not steep there. It's starting to flatten out, not just flatten out a little bit. Also, like 2018, it flattened out a hell of a lot. So the market was saying, yeah, the Fed's going to be hawkish in the short run. We see that in the whites and the reds. The front part of the curve steepens. But we think the Fed is hawkish for the wrong reasons, like 2018, because the Fed really doesn't know what's going on in the economy and the monetary system. In the market, the Eurodollar futures market, like the treasury market or the German bonds or JGBs or any number of other markets, interest rate swaps, they're all starting to see negative signs, negative signals, negative indications pile up. That gets reflected in a flattening Eurodollar futures curve, particularly in the greens and blues in this in this instance, which is, again, it seems like there's two different curves being traded at the same time, which is really, that's really the case. And it's very reminiscent of 2018. And in fact, it's almost a perfect carbon copy of what happened in the middle of 2018. In that list of other market indications, you forgot to mention the US dollar, which is also rising just like 2018. Okay. So... Now we move on to our final graph for this episode. Yes, our final graph. Now we're just focusing on the most recent weeks, late November. We start out with the last point from our previous graph, November 22nd, and then 26th, the 30th, and the 1st. And that's where we see the inversion. Uh, we see it flattening, flattening, and then inversion. Yeah, and it's really since late October. And again, it's a consistent across all of these marketplaces. You look at October 21st, I believe it is. That was the most recent top in the 10-year treasury. 10-year treasuries, like the 30-year treasuries, longer-term treasury yields have been falling since October 21st, which is a reflection of these same problems, the same deflationary potential the market sees from inside the system. And coincidentally, not, not random coincidence, but at just you know timing-wise, the euro-dollar futures curve flattened and flattened more going back to October 21st. And then over the last couple of weeks of November, this flattening really took shape. I mean, obvious shape, you know, last half of November, before we heard about the latest strain of COVID, before anything, you know, all this deflationary potential has been building up since March. We're talking about eight months here. Now we start to see the euro dollar futures curve almost perfectly flat. In some days it was perfectly flat in the greens where the greens meet the blues. So, you know, the middle part of the euro dollar futures curve, but it never inverted. It didn't quite invert because, you know, inversion, it really takes a lot to invert. And that's, you know, flat curve is already concerning. But the fact that it didn't invert was sort of a, OK, the market's, you know, really trying to take a very solid look at what's going on, what it perceives and what it sees. But it's not yet ready to commit to like it did in 2018, sort of the going past the point of no return. But that happened on December 1st. On December 1st, for the first time in this cycle, 
this part of the euro dollar futures curve did invert. And it not only inverted yesterday, because we're taping this on December 2nd, it's also inverted a little bit more today. So it's sticking around. It's one of those things where, okay, the fact that it inverted, we're already, we're already paying attention. Our radar is already up and looking at this. And the fact that it's sticking around is one of those things, because that's the next part. Okay, yeah, inverted, but is it just a short-term fluctuation and maybe something, some technical problem somewhere that really explains it? We don't think so, because the way it's been flattening out over a significant chunk of time, it's almost like we expected this to happen. But still, we want to see if it continues and if it grows, because if it does, like 2018, this is a tremendously powerful signal that the market has perceived a set of factors that are deeply negative. They're deeply deflationary, at least anti-inflationary, that something has substantially changed such that this curve, which should be upward sloping, but has been flat, is now no longer flat. It's actually a tiny bit inverted, which is, again, that's, this is a big one. Jeff, I don't have anything more. I, I thought maybe mentioning that, you know, you earlier mentioned something about the, the coronavirus variant and how you had written in a previous blog post that it doesn't really matter what it is, what snowflake, what feather, what cherry on top. The conditions were being set. Who knows what it's going to be? It's the conditions that we were observing and so is the coronavirus XQ, whatever it is, whatever version we're on. But it just could be anything. I thought about mentioning that, but I decided I'm not going to. So is there anything? No, I think that's a really good point. What we're talking about here, whether it's the yield curve or the euro dollar futures curve or anything else, is probabilities, right? We're, we, don't, we, we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we look at the yield curve flattening out since March. And here we are with Omicron. Did the, did the, did the bond market predict Omicron? Well, no. What the bond market did, like the bond market, including the yield curve, as well as euro dollar futures curves have done, have said, look, we'll take a very comprehensive, broad view of the monetary system, economic climate and say, what are the balance of risk? Now, when the curves were steepening, especially in January and February of this year, what they were saying is that the balance of risks have changed favorably. Maybe we will get a recovery this time. Maybe there will be a tiny bit of growth in inflation. And so the curve steepened out, not just in the front ends but across the entire curve. And that was just balance of probabilities had grown more favorable. Now they had grown only, they've been grown more favorable than 2020, which is an incredibly low standard, which allowed the media to run wild with these stories about inflation, when really it was just a, a tiny little bit less pessimistic than it had been previous. But since March, 20, March, March of this year, March, 2021, these curves have become more and more pessimistic. And what they're really telling you is that in very nonspecific terms, the balance of probabilities have shifted. They're tilting more and more toward the downside. There's more downside risk than certainly being talked about or appreciated in the mainstream narrative. And this downside risk has grown over time, not shrunk, despite the fact that we have these enormous CPIs that make it seem like we're in the 1970s again. The market continues to be more and more resolute. The downside risk, deflationary risk are far more likely than any continuous upside inflationary risk. What that really says is we don't know what it will be that eventually tips everything over into more of a deflationary condition like 2018, we're just increasingly confident that this is going to happen, that something is going to come along. We don't know what it is, but something is going to come along and it's going to push the system out of this you know, upward rebound, lackluster recovery and into the same kind of familiar downturn we've seen time and time again. So whatever it is, and the longer this goes, it doesn't, the more the market is saying, not only do we not know what the specific spark will be, 
it won't even take a big spark to change everything and move it into the wrong direction, to change an upturn into a downturn again, like it happened in 2018. So it's not like the markets have been predicting the next variant of Omicron, what they've or the next variant of COVID. What they've done is say balance of risks means that something small could come along and it could turn out to be very big because conditions are ripe. They're deflationary. We have all of these problems that nobody in the mainstream seems to be writing, reporting, talking about that are very real. We may not be able to see them because they're in the shadow system, but we're going to trade on them. And here's the information. We're telling you based on these curves what we think from the inside, the probability distribution of the, the intermediate and near-term future are going to be. And when you see one of those curves tip into inversion like you're at other futures, that's the market really telling you very strongly that the inside perceptions of probabilities moving forward are tilted very heavily toward the deflationary side. In part three of this episode, we're going to go back to episode 168 and revisit an argument we had whether or not quantitative easing affects bond yields. In that episode, we discussed whether or not the flow, the purchases, affect bond yields. This time we're going to talk about stock. Does it matter how much of a certain asset that you've got on your balance sheet? Will that trigger an impact in bond yields? So you're just not going to want to miss it. Eurodollar University. My name is Emil Kalinowski. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. In episode 168, we presented to you a case that said the central bank, the Federal Reserve, the European Central Bank does not affect bond yields. They do not influence bond yields with their QE policies based on the number of purchases they make. But there are people that will say that it is rigged, that it's that we're looking at the wrong thing, that we're looking at the flow of purchases versus the stock of purchases. Jeff, what is the complaint? What is the response from our some members of our audience regarding our argument? Yeah, I mean, as you said, we often use the bond market yield curve and things like that to calibrate our expectations, to gain a lot of insight and information into what's going on in the financial marketplace. And people don't like what we're saying. And not only that, they say, well, you're not looking at the market, you're looking at the Fed's purchases, right? So when you say that low interest rates are a reflection of low growth and inflation expectations going lower and lower and lower over time, what they're saying is, no, that's just the Fed buying more and more bonds. Therefore, the signal that you're relying on to set your expectations and make forecasts and predictions has been spoiled by all of these bond purchases. The Fed has screwed up the bond market because the Fed has said we want interest rates to be low and we're buying a hell of a lot of bonds. Therefore, interest rates are low must be because we bought a hell of a lot of bonds. We have this perfect correlation. So you can't rely on the bond market or interest rates because they've been completely upended by this massive megalithic purchase programs from what, you know, if the Federal Reserve, ECB, Bank of Japan, whatever central bank it is, they have completely spoiled the signal. Now, let's just do a little example for the audience, Jeff. Okay. Maybe they haven't seen 168. We'll do an example for the flow argument by looking at this chart that goes from 2008 to 2011. That shows the balance sheet size. I believe these are treasury securities, not the balance sheet size, but treasury securities held by the Federal Reserve. 
And then we've got the 10-year and 30-year yields here. And Jeff, you just jump in. In 2008, the Fed wasn't buying, but yields were falling and prices were rising. 2009, the Fed was buying, yields were rising, and prices were falling. 2010, no buying, yields falling, prices rising. 2011, Fed was buying, yields were rising, and prices were falling. It's not exactly the theory, is it, right? From the public's perspective, people who don't follow this stuff closely, the theory sounds very, it sounds entirely plausible, if not likely, right? You have this large non-economic actor that comes into the marketplace and starts buying up these assets. Why wouldn't it be able to influence prices? But as you're saying, Emil, it only takes five seconds of work to disabuse you of these notions because as much as the theory sounds plausible, in practice, it works out at best, not really any detectable effect. But in reality, it's almost always the opposite, right? As you pointed out, especially in the early, early aftermath of the crisis period, you have it where it's almost exactly opposite. The Fed starts buying bonds and yields rise. They're supposed to be falling here. Why are they rising? And the reason how we reconcile all this is not via QE. The QE is really irrelevant. What we're really saying is that as Irving Fisher identified more than a century ago, longer term bond yields are a combination of growth and inflation expectations. That's it. Full stop. It doesn't matter how many bonds the Fed buys or how much flow in any particular time period. The market is trading on growth and inflation expectations. And so the way you actually look at that, in the, especially in 2009, the early part of 2009, the bond market was actually being very complimentary of QE. It was saying, look, this stuff might actually work. We're predicting higher growth and higher inflation because of maybe because of bond buying, maybe just because the crisis is over. But whatever it is, this was a good thing. The market was saying there's a combination of positives here that we see that the market sees as higher growth and higher inflation. That's really, I mean, the whole theory is completely upside down from beginning to end. And you're very complimentary to us, Jeff, by saying it only takes five seconds. It actually took us 21 minutes where we went from 2008 to 2020, ladies and gentlemen. It took us 21 minutes. Well, there, you know, that's because there's so many QEs. They have to repeat them all the time because they work so well, right? So we had to go through all of the QEs in order to, I mean, look, all of these QEs, we did QT, we did Europe, we did all of these other examples, and every single one shows that the flow argument, the level of purchases or the pace of purchases in the particular period is complete and utter bunk. The Fed does not influence bond yields. Bond yields are growth and inflation expectations. Al contraire, my friend, because I'm showing another graph now. And what does this graph show? It shows major central bank assets versus global stock and bond market value, Jeff. And I'm looking at this just quickly. If you just quickly look at it, the correlation is there and therefore the causation is there. Bond buying central bank activity leads to higher stock and bond market values. True. Au contraire, au contraire, my friend, because no, you're committing the first fallacy, you're committing to the first fallacy of statistics, which is correlation does not always imply causation. In fact, it rarely implies causation. So yes, we do see that central bank around the world, we do see that central bank bond purchases largely roughly corresponds with the increase in value and holdings and increase of prices of those bonds. But does one thing cause the other? Is it that the rising prices of bonds are caused by the central bank purchases? Or are those two things just mere coincidence? 
And as it turns out, those two things are mere coincidence. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at charts. You can look at any number of data indications. But you can also read what these Federal Reserve policymakers in particular have said about it. And as I quoted in the article, Richard Fisher, who's not really well known as the most astute of the FOMC members, he's the emptiest of the empty suits, in 2011 was kind of wondering why the Fed was buying all of these bonds that the market was already buying anyway, because that's not really what central banks are supposed to do. And what he was really saying in terms of our discussion here is we're buying bonds the market's already buying. So our bond buying is coincident to the market's bond buying. So the prices are not really being set by our bond buying. The prices are already being set by the market's bond buying, not ours. We're just doing the same things at the same time because, as he didn't ever figure out, both things are reactions to the same thing. We have exogenous money shock that leads everybody to reduce their growth and inflation expectations in the bond market, which means they want to own safe and liquid assets. They start buying, the private market starts buying these safe and liquid assets. Yields fall. The Federal Reserve or ECB or whatever central bank comes along and says, hey, we're starting to get the idea that money system's not really good here. We probably should make a policy change so that we can try to stop these deflationary outcomes from proliferating. What well, we're already at the zero lower bound or we're near it. So we're going to buy bonds because our monetary policy revolves entirely around bank reserves. And the only way we can increase bank reserves that nobody needs is by buying bonds. So the private market's already buying bonds. Then along comes the Federal Reserve or the other central banks to also buy bonds at this at nearly the same time, it's usually the private market, then the Fed. And it's not that the Fed is raising the price of bonds. The Fed is just doing the same thing the market has already done because both things are correlating to what is the actual cause, which is an exogenous monetary shock. Let me backtrack a couple of spots here, Jeff. I'll read Mr. Fisher's quote, Dallas Fed Richard Fisher. Here we go. Quote, in summary, I want to mention that, as I said earlier, most of these variations that have been suggested are very unbadget like and what I mean by that is twisting entails purchasing, this is the key part, purchasing assets that investors are fleeing toward, not assets that they are fleeing from. Thank you very much, Jeff, for reminding us that. And now I'm going to read a quote from you, and I want you to help define one of the terms here. Quote, during a period of tight money, we would expect that the prices of safe and liquid instruments would rise at nearly the same time Central banks respond in their predictable way to the same tight money condition. In a world of exogenous money, like the Eurodollar system, the one does not cause the other. Rather, this is the key, both are reactions to the same thing, the exogenous money. Jeff, I've been practicing saying exogenous. When I first read it, I got to exogen and then I gave up. What is exogia money? What does that mean? We're just talking about a system that exists outside the ability of the Federal Reserve to control. It's a, a system of money that's external, another word for exogenous, external to the perspective of not just the Fed, but the United States in general, because the euro dollar, as we talked about at length in the previous segments, is about offshore money. It's outside money. It's money that's not really part of the U.S. I mean, it flows inside and out, but it's really... Money creation that takes place outside. So it's an exogenous factor to what the Federal Reserve considers its mandate, which is the United States economy and the United States banking system. So if we have a problem outside of the Federal Reserve's control, thinking of Robert Roos's great quote from 1984, these 
new networks of interbank relations outside beyond the control of the Federal Reserve, this exogenous money experienced a spasm that causes the private market to react to this deflationary spasm, tight money spasm, by wanting to own a lot of safe and liquid instruments. And by owning a lot of safe and liquid instruments and by prioritizing safe and liquid instruments, that's also another way of saying we don't think growth and inflation is going to be very good for a probably long time because we're only going to own safe and liquid instruments because we think growth and inflation isn't going to be good because of tight money. So you have the private account, the private bond market order reacting to this outside external monetary spasm. And once it goes far enough, because you know, the Federal Reserve and monetary policymakers are they're stuck in denial for a very long period of time until they no longer can deny what's going on. Eventually, they have to come around because at some point it becomes undeniable, this exogenous monetary spasm. And the Fed will, as it did in 2008, it will react first by reducing the federal funds target, which doesn't help. And eventually you get down to the zero lower bound. What else can you do? You're the Fed. You've raised, you've lowered rates as far as they'll go. Not that it has helped any because the bond market has already lowered rates. You have to start increasing bank reserves because that's the way you try to tell the public you're being accommodative to try to sell them on positive expectations is by creating bank reserves. Nobody needs bank reserves, but it's for the public consumption. It's for you to be able to say to the public, I'm doing something that you're supposed to believe is helpful. And the only way to to create bank reserves and to raise the systemic level of bank reserves is to buy assets. So you have the Fed starting to buy the same assets the market has already bought by the bushel full, and it's not one causing the other. Both are reacting to the same thing, this exogenous monetary spasm that looks very coincidental because it is coincidental. I'm going to read another good quote by you and then go back to the graph that we raised just a moment ago. And that'll be it for me, Jeff. Here we go. The Fed's balance sheet is actually the same thing, the same sort of indication as falling yields, both adding up to negative deflationary connotations. When the central bank's balance sheet goes up, not only is this not the cause of rising bond prices, the QEs, again, are a reaction to the same problem, which further corroborates why and how bond yields have already sunk. Yeah, I think that's an important point, too, because and it's one that, I, you know, people who believe in the Fed's power really don't like, because what we're saying is that when the Fed raises its level of bank reserves, that's another coincident and consistent warning with all of these other deflationary measures we see. Because if both are reacting to the same exogenous monetary spasm, and they are, then when the Fed raises its level of bank reserves, what that tells us is that there must be a real problem, that the Fed, the Fed, the, the last people in the room who actually understand what's going on, if they can see this deflationary problem that is causing them to think they need to raise the level of bank reserves by buying bonds, then it must be a really serious situation if even these people can see it. And so the Fed's balance sheet, the level of bank reserves, that's not money printing. It's another deflationary warning. It tells us that the situation has gone so far, the Fed starts to do what the private market has already been doing. And so, again, going back to Richard Fisher, they're buying bonds the market has already fleed towards in huge numbers. And that's what drives prices of these instruments, not the Fed's bond buying. The Fed's bond buying is simply just a coincident and consistent indication to why the private market is buying bonds to begin with. You know, I think we should end this segment on what you always point out in this position. And I'll let you talk about it because, yes, sure, the Fed buys U.S. Treasuries, but do they buy U.S. dollars? Do they buy Eurodollar futures? No. 
we're not just talking about U.S. Treasuries or the yield curve here. The yield curve, like the Fed's balance sheet, are part of a comprehensive picture that we can put together that tells us the same thing. And you go through it, Emil, because this is this this is a one thing you always talk about. You know, a good thing that you always talk about. I would like to, Jeff, but you've stolen my thunder. And ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you know, think sorry about no, that. no, no, not not what you just <laughs> said. But ladies and gentlemen, you perceive Jeff as this robot, maybe a cyborg just diving into the transcripts and he doesn't have any fun and there's he never reads any fiction. Let me just quote this very fervent, passionate comment, quote, sentence from Jeff. The final bucket of nails in this stock idea gets hammered home repeatedly by what my brashly astute, I can't read it without blushing, brashly astute co-host Emil Kalinowski lustily points out time and again, <laughs> this being the whole rest of the bond market, euro dollar futures swap spreads, swap spreads the dollar exchange value. This is the first time you put the word lust in your writing, brash, astute, lust. <laughs> I felt it was so, especially, I mean, who does not lust over the bond market's deflationary signals, right? I mean, that's the, if the word lustly doesn't apply to this context, it applies nowhere, sir. I'm going to ask the editor to hew down my ears which and my face, which must be red as a beat. Well, to your point, Jeff, we, we talked. No, and yeah. I think that's, okay, look, I think the final takeaway is this. You don't like what the bond market is saying, fine. You know, the Fed has tainted the rig, the bond market, sure. But it hasn't tainted everything else. All of these other indications that are telling us in real time, in historically validated circumstances, what is actually going on that is consistent with the low growth and inflation interpretation of bond yields. The Fed has not rigged the entire bond market. It hasn't even rigged part of it, but it certainly has not rigged the entire bond market. And the entire bond market consistently tells you the stock argument is, is equally bunk as the flow argument. Thank you very much, Jeff. I had a... Great time. Great week. Hope you had a nice Thanksgiving. And uh, anything else? Anything you're looking forward to? Oh, yes, of course. There's a Monday night football game between the New England Patriots and the Buffalo Bills. Holy cow. A big one. And there's two of them coming up. Yeah. Two back in uh, almost back to back almost. Excellent. That'll be exciting. Big games to look forward to. Absolutely. What our foreign, our foreign uh, watchers and viewers complain to me on Twitter and they say, don't call it football, call it hand egg ball, hand egg ball. <laughs> I think that would be more accurate. I mean, they have a case here because you don't really use your foot much in football, at least in American football. So they do have a point there. But, you know, us Americans like to think, well, this is what it is. So this is what we're going to call it. <laughs> That's right. All right, Jeff. Thank you very much. I'll talk to you again next week. Play.